0: Welcome back to The Reeducation. Today's show is about a Jewish revolt against the Seleucid dynasty way back in the second century BC. Now, we know this story because it is the backdrop of Hanukkah, although we have strayed far from its many profound lessons. Today, my guest is Ari Lam, the founder of Soul Shop Studios and the chief rabbi of The Reeducation podcast, and we discuss. What I think are the real profound lessons of Hanukkah and not just the sort of dressed up Western version that we celebrate because it falls around Christmas.
1: Yeah, so it's the Greeks. The Greeks drove us out to the Hanukkah story. We were gone for about 100 years, and then we came back. They left. They were like, this place sucks. And they fucking took off. <laughs> So they left, and then they, they really they fucked up our, our temple, like our main, you know, church, pretty much. They like messed, I don't know what they did. They knocked over chairs and they, yeah. <laughs> Spray painted dicks on the walls. You know. <laughs> but the main thing they did was they used our, our oil candle, supposed to keep lit all the time, this oil candle. And they only had one day's worth of oil left. And new oil was eight days away. And they're like, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna keep it lit? And the Jews are like, I don't know, fuck it, light it up. Let's see what happens. <laughs> And somehow, one day's worth of oil lasted for eight days. And that is when Jews learned how to be cheap. (laughs) It's the miracle of Hanukkah, everybody. (laughs) Yeah, that candle is the miracle of Hanukkah. Dumbest miracle in the history of organized religion. You just
0: heard a snippet from the hilarious comic Ari Shafir. It's from his latest comedy special, and he is explaining what he calls the dumbest miracle in the history of organized religion. And Mr. Shafir knows what he's talking about because at one time in his life, he studied a yeshiva and he was going to become an Orthodox rabbi. He realized that that life was not for him and he eventually found himself in the stand-up comedian business where he has really excelled in my view. Anyway, in the prosperous West in 2022, Hanukkah is basically Jewish Christmas. We light a menorah, we spin dreidels, we eat latkes. There are presents on all eight nights for the kids. There are third-rate milk chocolate coins wrapped in foil. Some homes, Jewish homes, even display a Hanukkah bush. It might as well be Festivus. It's a way for non-Christians to mark the winter solstice today. But if you strip away the cultural gloss of American Hanukkah, what you find is a pretty great story about the geopolitics of antiquity, the tensions between assimilation, and cultural identity, and a stirring-against-all-odds military drama, where the chosen people learned how to become a nation through a military rebellion. So, you have to start this story with one of the greats, pardon the pun, and that would be Alexander of Makedown. He is the Michael Jordan of the ancient world's emperors. I really recommend listening to the series called King of Kings on the Hardcore History Podcast with friend of the show, Dan Carlin, or his Hardcore History Addendum podcast, Glimpses of Olympias. And if you really want to get like super hardcore, go back and buy the archives and listen to Macedonian soap opera. He does a very good job in a podcast format of telling you like facets of the amazing story of Alexander and his father, Philip of Macedon. But let me just summarize in the extreme. Alexander led his army from Macedonia through the Middle East and Egypt and through modern day Iran all the way to Afghanistan when it was known as Bactria. And he did this all before his 33rd birthday. And then suddenly he died. Maybe he was poisoned. Maybe it was alcoholism. Historians argue to this day because we don't really know. But he died young and he died suddenly. And this is important because of the circumstances around his sudden and early death. He didn't really name a successor. Instead, he is rumored to have said as he was dying to the strongest, meaning to his generals, fight it out and that is exactly what alexander's generals did they fought for control of his empire which at the time of this is now 323 bce was pretty much the known world for at least the mediterranean peoples i mean there of course is ancient china which is its own kind of historical civilization but nobody really in greece knew about it so this is like alexander did conquer the world at the time at least Anyway, let's fast forward to the 2nd century BC. And at this point, there is the Ptolemaic Empire, which is comprised mainly of Egypt, and the Seleucid Empire that swallows up modern-day Syria and most of the Levant, meaning Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, etc. Okay, the two empires, named for two of Alexander's general, Ptolemy and Seleucid, are constantly in this period fighting over what is then known as Judea. And that is the kind of historic home of the Jews. That's where you'll find Jerusalem. And that's where you will find the second temple, which, by the way, the ancient Persian Empire allowed the Jews to rebuild a temple after the first one was destroyed by the wicked Babylonians. Okay. Now, in the middle of all of this drama are the Jewish people. And under Alexander, and then later Ptolemy, and even the first Seleucid Empire emperors, you know, the Jews of Judea were allowed to worship their god, and what a revolutionary god it was, the first monotheistic religion and to practice their religion. And because there was still a second temple, there it's not quite what it is today because there were still sacrifices at the temple and so forth. But it was a pretty good arrangement, I would say, for the Jewish people. The Jews had it pretty good under ancient Persia; they had it okay under Alexander, of course, taxes. But they were allowed to sort of be part of the empire. But they didn't have to give up their identity and their culture. Okay. And I have to say, in this circumstance, a lot of Jews were very happy to assimilate. And, you know, who could blame them? And I take nothing away from the advantages in ancient times of Jewish monotheism. It's set of laws, the Sabbath, all revolutionary ideas at the time. But the Greeks of this era were no slouches. I mean, they brought gymnasiums to ancient Israel, theater, philosophy, not to mention geometry and architecture. So over time, the second temple in Jerusalem became a little corrupted, you could say. There were even altars to Greek gods in the temple, which is a big no-no. And the elites of Jerusalem at the time, they really didn't mind because they too had become somewhat Hellenized. Greek culture offered a lot to the Jewish people, and Jewish elites were happy to explore a lot of these new ideas and absorb a lot of this literature and philosophy. Anyway, this is a classic example of something that Theodor Herzl observed in his seminal work, The Jewish State. And I want to quote from it. I've quoted from this before on the podcast, but I'm going to quote from it again. The world is provoked somehow by our prosperity, this is Herzl, because it has for many centuries been accustomed to consider us as the most contemptible among the poverty-stricken. In its ignorance and narrowness of heart, it fails to observe that prosperity weakens our Judaism and extinguishes our peculiarities. It is only pressure that forces us back to the parent stem. It is only hatred encompassing us that makes us strangers once more. Thus... Whether we like it or not, we are now and shall henceforth remain a historic group with unmistakable characteristics common to us all. End of quote. That's Herzl. I want to linger on that line. Prosperity weakens our Judaism and extinguishes our peculiarities. Because that is what is happening in the prelude to the Hanukkah story. Jews were naming their boys, for example, Alexander, for the, obviously, the great general and conqueror. In some cases, young Jewish men would try to reverse their circumcisions, if you can believe this, in order to participate in wrestling matches and gymnasiums, which at the time were conducted in the nude. And if you can imagine, it's a very painful process of either trying to stretch back one's foreskin or reattach it. Ugh, yuck. All because of social pressure, the sort of soft power, against circumcision, all right? It wasn't an edict, but, you know, it was seen as culturally uncouth to show up for a wrestling match in the gymnasium. With a circumcised pecker. Okay, my point here is that before Antiochus IV began his reign of persecution, many, though not all, the Jews of Judea were well on their way to shedding the old time religion for the new ways of the Greeks. And here is a snippet from a lecture from Henry Abramson at Toro College from about, I guess, it's 2015 when he's giving this lecture. And he is explaining the appeal of Hellenism to the Jewish people in the second century BCE. Take a listen.
2: Would look, anyone with even a cursory familiarity with the Mishnah and the Talmud sees how deep Greek culture reached into our way of thinking. And we're constantly borrowing concepts, words, personal names like Antigonus ish Socho. Antigonus is clearly a greek name and there are thousands of greek names throughout so we encountered this culture and we found it to be of tremendous utility we thought this is an exceptional course and we love it the problem is we loved it too much for our own good okay that's the
0: backdrop here to the hanukkah story
2: and you could imagine
0: that if antiochus just left judea alone there's at least a chance that the Jewish elites of the day would have won out. And, you know, the Jewish people in that region would have drifted further and further away from the religion of Judaism as they practiced it then. And, you know, Judaism as we know it would be kind of an historical curiosity, like the Aramaic language, or for that matter, Greek mythology. Something that we'd certainly probably know about because, you know, the Jews by that point had played an important role in sort of the geopolitics and of the region and everything like that. But it was, you know, an interesting part of the past, not a going concern. Okay, now Antiochus was you know, clearly an anti-Semite, but he was also as wicked as he was stupid. So he was evil and dumb. And after being humiliated in his effort to swallow up the Ptolemaic Empire in Egypt, and this is a fascinating like, little side note here, but a Roman consul strong arms him basically to withdraw the Seleucid Army by drawing with a walking stick in a circle around him in the sand, and said, "Make your decision about whether you're going to want war with the Roman Empire you know by the time you step out of this circle." The classic story is told in the in Livy and Antiochus decided to sort of retreat from Egypt with his tail between his legs and on his way and uh, Rabbi Ari lamb gets into this in our conversation, but basically decides. To kick the dog because, you know, his boss at work yelled at him, and he decided to sack the Jewish temple on his way back to Syria. Along with that, he began imposing new laws that just tried to wipe out and prohibit the practice of Judaism altogether. He made observance of the Sabbath, for example, illegal, and in kind of humiliating and persecuting the Jews of Judea, which again were like kind of halfway on the road to Hellenism anyway when it was a free choice, but he had to force the matter. And that's how we get into this Hanukkah story. Now, it's under this new regime that we begin to see really extraordinary acts of martyrdom. I want to share a little bit of this. It's the story of Hannah and her seven sons, as told in the second book of Maccabees. This story is of a mother who watches her seven sons tortured and murdered before her eyes, all because they refused to kneel before an altar. And here is an excerpt. I want to just read this. These are, these are three or four stanzas here from this story of Hannah and her seven sons. They brought the third handcuffed and his tears were flowing. He said to him, my child, obey me in a single matter. Arise, worship my idol, and your days will be long. We shall raise you to high rank and give you great power. If you hear and obey me, you will be exalted over all of my servants. He answered him with fine speech. Pay attention and listen. Your idol is the work of man. He has ears and does not hear. He has a nose and does not smell. Eyes and does not see. He has hands and does not grasp. Feet and does not walk. You are like your idol. Ignorant unbeliever. He condemned him to death and said, bring a firebrand. Take him and torture him. Roast and fry his flesh. He disobeys my religion. He constantly speaks arrogantly. He despises my idol and mocks my deeds. Bring his blood to me in haste. Hurry up and do not delay. They took the poor fellow, mutilated him, and stripped the skin from his head. They cut off his hands and feet and threw him next to his brothers. His mother saw it with her eyes, and when they drew out his insides, she could not say a word, but her soul was with his soul. She wept and cried and said, Oh, my babies. That is pretty stirring stuff. That's the end of my excerpt from uh, The Ballad of Hannah and Her Sons. Okay, now the most famous example of this kind of Jewish religious defiance, and even to a certain, I guess, call it defiance, happens in the town of Modin, nearby Jerusalem. That's where Matthias or you know, the Hebrew would be Yahu, similar to the uh, kind of Jewish reggae stuff today. And he is the original patriarch of what will become the Hasmonean dynasty and, of course, is the father of Judah Maccabee. Anyway, he's asked a representative of Antiochus to sacrifice pig at the altar of Zeus, which is a double violation of Jewish law, because after such a sacrifice, you're not supposed to kneel in front of any altar, obviously, because we can't have graven images. You know, you don't pray to like a statue of Elohim. But after such a sacrifice, you're supposed to eat the sacrificed animal, in this case the pig, which is, of course, an kosher. So not only does Matashyahu refuse the order. But when another Jew volunteers to do it in his stead, he kills him. And then he kills the Seleucid soldiers as well. And that's the beginning of the great revolt against the Seleucid dynasty in Judea. It's the Maccabean revolt, so named for, as we said, one of Matashyahu's five sons, Judah, who earned the nickname the Hammer or Maccabee. That's where we get Maccabee from. It means. Judah the Hammer, the Hebrew Hammer. And I got to say, Judah was a really impressive general. And let me just describe it briefly here. He began the campaign, like most rebellions, where he would kind of had a ragtag, you could say, militia, and he practiced guerrilla tactics. These would be nighttime raids. You know, he would lure the enemy into steep valleys and they would be ambushed, that kind of thing. And in this period, in the beginning, he is fighting and winning battles against Seleucid proxies themselves, which is usually comprised, by the way, of other Jews who were fighting for the new regime. And these were the Hellenized Jews. So this is like a Jewish civil war. We should we should make that pretty clear, even though it's also a rebellion against a regional empire. Okay. over time. And this is where I think Judah is really impressive, really super impressive is that he takes this militia's force, this kind of guerrilla army, if you can call it an army, and he trains them in traditional military tactics of the era, like, you know, formations for, like, phalanxes and things like that, and he actually turns it into a national army. And he did that in less than 10 years, which is really, really impressive, because once you have kind of a real army that can stand and fight in the battlefield, that's a, you know, precondition to having an independent state. So really impressive for Judah. And I should say Judah dies in a heroic manner when his forces are outnumbered in a subsequent battle. He tries his best to go straight to the um, kind of general leading this charge. And he's overwhelmed. He doesn't get to him. But the point is, is that, you know, he was he was willing to sacrifice his own life, which is which is quite impressive. Anyway, now there's another side to the Hanukkah story. And, you know, to understand this, it's you got to look at this as like this battle between Hellenized Jews and maybe Jewish fundamentalists. And if you were being uncharitable, you might call the Maccabees the Jewish Taliban. After all, Judah's brother, Eleazar was an ancient version of the suicide bomber. He crawled under an invading war elephant. He had believed that the war elephant was carrying the emperor of the Seleucid, uh, Antiochus, at the time. Thrust his spear into his belly, only to be crushed by the beast when it collapsed. So... Anyway, in the interest of steel Manning this argument, I want to read from the great Christopher Hitchens in 2007, making the case for the Hellenized Jews over the Maccabees in the Hanukkah story. Here is Christopher Hitchens. As a consequence of the successful Maccabean revolt against Hellenism, so it is said, a puddle of olive oil that should have lasted only for one day managed to burn for eight days. Wow certain proof not just of an almighty but an almighty with a special fondness for fundamentalists epicurus and democritus had brilliantly discovered that the world was made up of atoms but who cares about a mere fact like that when there is a miraculous oil to be goggled at by credulous peasants even when he's wrong hitchens is always worth reading he's such a great okay so it's true that the enemies of the maccabees had accepted the teachings or had, I should say, you know, had, had learned from the teachings of Epicurus and Democritus, read the plays of Aristophanes, learned the geometry of Euclid, and the philosophy of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. But Antiochus wanted to destroy Jewish culture altogether. This is an important fact that's kind of like missing from Hitchens' piece that I read from, which is called Ba Hanukkah, it appeared in his slate column. And it was only the Hellenist side that forced that choice. And we know this because after... The Maccabees ultimately succeed, and they, they throw the Seleucids out. There's about 100 years of Hasmonean rule, and during that time, Greek culture was not banned, I and mean, you could still go to the gymnasium and attend the plays of Sophocles. Okay, so what does Hanukkah tell us about our life today, or Jewish life today in America? I think it gets back to that great Herzl insight. In a country like America, where Jews have largely been welcomed into every facet of society, we have seen a dilution of the Jewish community. It's true. I mean, there, of course, I want to say there are modern Orthodox Jews who make, you know, the religion part of their daily lives. There are, of course, Hasidic communities who, who self-segregate into more insular groups. But for many modern Jews, especially younger ones, they barely attend synagogue, maybe on high holidays or Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. There's a lot of intermarriage. Outside of a few cities, there are really no kosher restaurants or kosher markets, a modern modest Yahoo today might, I'd say, would be disgusted with most American Jewry, just as many modern Jews are offended by the gender segregation in like Orthodox shuls. So the point is that the absence of discrimination and persecution of Jews by American institutions or American elites today has had a perverse effect of weakening uh, American Jewish identity over time. Again, not all. There may be some changes. There might be people recognizing the importance of. Having a spiritual or religious identity, things can change. You know, I'm not trying to read the future here, but this is a fact that in 2022 in America, Jews are sort of less religious. You know, modern Jews know less about the history of their people and their religion than maybe they did 100 years ago. Okay, I should say I am a secular Jew, 100 percent, and I enjoy all the privileges of American life and culture from its unkosher meats to Friday night movies. And yet I am still grateful that more than 2,100 years ago in Modin, a Jewish priest killed another Jew who had bent the knee for Zeus. That sounds strange, but it's because the survival of Judaism itself was at stake. Christopher Hitchens is right, that Athens is a font of modern civilization. You know what? But so was Jerusalem. And it was only the representatives of Athens back during the Seleucid dynasty that sought to erase the memory of Jerusalem wasn't the other way around. So it's ironic today that one can still find synagogues all over the world, but how many people are still sacrificing pigs to the idols of Zeus? (laughs) Well, dear listeners, we're really lucky to have another return guest, the chief rabbi of the Reeducation podcast, a dear friend, a former intern, and the founder of Soul Shop Studios, not to mention host of the Good Faith Effort podcast, Ari Lam. Thank you so much for gracing us. I'm so excited. I'm just here to learn from you. Well, no, we are definitely learning from you today because you know this stuff really well. (laughs) And one of the great things about Ari is that he is not just a rabbi. He has a Ph.D. in Middle Eastern history. Is that right? Uh, yeah, ancient, ancient religion. <laughs> well, that's what, I, that's what we're talking about. Okay. So let's talk Seleucids. Let's talk the breakup of the great Macedonian army and its implications for the Levant. Let's do this, baby. That's, <laughs> and we are talking Hanukkah. And that's <laughs> what this is about, because I want to get it. I want to attack it from a lot of different angles, but I want to start with the geopolitics of the second century BCE and as we get to what is known as the Maccabean revolt. But let's, let's paint the picture a little. Okay. We've got an upstart general, maybe the greatest general of all time, trained by Aristotle named Alexander. He gets all the way to ancient Persia to the capital, dies. We don't even know why. We still debate it, historians. Am I correct so far? Exactly. Okay. And his great empire then breaks up, and you get, and it basically is divided among the generals. There's a there's an interesting story here where his like last words are like, Well, who's who's the next, who's the next godfather? Who's the next boss? He says, To the strongest. And so all <laughs> of his disciples, all of his generals start fighting. And that creates a fascinating kind of situation where you have, you know, former comrades in charge of rival parts of the Middle East going after one another. And in the middle of all this is the, is the nation of Judea. So why don't we pick it up from there, Ari? Because that's the, that's the sort of broad geopolitics as we enter into the brief Hasmonean
2: dynasty and the story of Hanukkah. Well, that's exactly right there's There's one major idea that kind of animates Alexander's conquests. It's that not only you know, does might make right, but there is a single good culture that should dominate the entire world and the extent of the empire. and while in order to make that even remotely feasible, Alexander wasn't a fool. He was quite, he was, not, in addition to a military genius, he was a brilliant cultural thinker. Well, he wasn't a fool, so he understood that he couldn't just impose the exact same thing in the exact same form everywhere. So he was, you know, bar, you know sort of lending local color to the idea that he was pushing wherever he went, whether it was Persia or India or somewhere else. What he really truly believed and fought for was the idea that Hellenism... The ethos, culture, and intellectual tradition of the old Greek world, of which he saw himself as a steward, was the best worldview and the only one worth having for a civilized people. And so, as Alexander kind of conquered the world, that was the message that and the spirit that he brought along with him. Okay, so I want to just, just,
0: to, just to sort of, and this is important here. The irony is that he makes it all the way and destroys the ancient Persian Empire, although you could argue he's he he's the last ancient Persian emperor. some people say that
2: right historians go
0: back and right. forth but the irony is that a few generations earlier it was the Persians who viewed the Greeks as the backwater you know sort of unrefined you know less civilized crew, and really from ancient persia, and we lose this because. You know, we are in the West and we, you know, so we we have the the version of history that has survived has been Herodotus, which is the Greek version of it, you know, and of course we, we, we know all about the Peloponnesian Wars from the Greek perspective and everything like that, but the Persians had a remarkable civilization. You could argue oh, they yeah. invented not only the concept of human rights, but maybe they invented the concept of luxury. The Persians were... And and they were extraordinarily successful. I mean, if you go back to the reign of, so-, so it's really something that 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 Alexander sees himself as a Hellenizer and a bringer of culture to the ancient Persians, who themselves saw them as a as a sort of you know massive cultural political force as well.
2: That that divide kind of lasts well into the Middle Ages right. and and even a little bit beyond there. There's this great book, the title of which I'm forgetting, but it's about kind of assassinations in, in the Middle Ages and early modern period. And one of the basic problems that historians of of Europe have with identifying what was a political assassination, what was just a natural death, is that Western Europe for most of its history was just a filthy, disgusting place, and so people were just dying all the time. Right. And there are the and you have like these texts where people from the Byzantine Empire. Or more or more more predominantly from Muslim lands would come to Western Europe, and they would just be they would report back to friends or write themselves at how disgusting it was to just be in a land that was covered head to toe in feces, right so like yeah. it's true Persian civilization in 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 many respects is an apex point in the ancient world, like you they say they invented in, like the postal a postal service
0: it's incredible oh yeah, yeah,
2: exactly, and Alexander, when he takes over the empire in many respects, just keeps in place a lot of the bureaucratic stuff that the Persians invented. Right. And that's in addition to, like, religious toleration and all that kind of stuff. And, I'm and, a big Cyrus the Great, Stan. Well, I like
0: Cyrus. <laughs> so, I'm with you. And, and the second point we should just make, and then we'll get into the Hanukkah story, is that Alex, Alexander comes from Macedonia. His father is Philip, what, the second? And, Philip. Right. Anyway, uh, who, was prob- who was an amazing figure in his own right. Anyway, but Macedonia is seen as a less cultured backwater by Athens, which is the sort of center of Greek cultural life. And everybody knows. So the Athenians kind of looked down their nose, even though the Macedonians had amassed an army that they couldn't stop. And they had to basically accede to Macedonian rule. and and, And Philip had the foresight to invite the great Aristotle to basically be the tutor of Alexander and a few of the other sons of you know the the royal macedonian court anyway so an impressive guy i just want to that's the background you have this one of the greatest conquerors ever dies young we still don't know why and then his empire is like it's kind of like a weird it's like world war 2 or something it's like or everybody is now fighting for you know who's going to who's who's going to run the empire because it's no longer as there's a central figure so let's that brings us to the, the, the Ptolemist and the Seleucids, right? The Ptolemies and the Seleucids, and the they're Ptolems fighting are, over, yeah. what our people would call the Holy Land, Judea, and pick it up from there. Right? so, so we've got so what's at, at, and this is now we're in the second century BCE.
2: So so to kind of make it short, what hap, Two of the major powers that emerged from the Alexandrian yeah. Empire, just two of his generals. Uh, are two of his generals. Yeah. One is named Ptolemy, one is named Seleucus, or Seleucus, if you're pronouncing it with the Greek K. And the Seleucids end up basing themselves in Asia Minor, what we would now think of today as kind of like Syria, Turkey, right. that kind of area. And the Ptolemies base themselves in Egypt. The Ptolemies are famous for giving rise to people we know like Cleopatra, etc. And the Seleucids are famous or infamous as the villains of the Hanukkah story. So, also, what I happens?
0: You say the Ptolemists the are also f- infamous for. Horrific inbreeding and incest. Oh, yeah. The Ptolemies like, are and they a just, total mess. It's like, it's a weird thing because we take it for granted, like, ew, you <laughs> can't do that. You can't marry your sister. They did it all the time. They just did it over and over again. Anyway.
2: Oh, the Ptolemies are like a total, like, Game of Thrones esque mess. Yes. It's like, it's really bad. Yeah. So, at about the year 300, uh, rather uh, a little bit before, that, about the year 200, the Holy Land changes hands. So, there's, there's a famous battle. It's called the Battle of the Banyas. The Battle of the Banias, or Panium, as it's called in in Greek source in Greek sources, it takes place in the year two hundred before the common era, and that is when the Holy Land changes hands and the Seleucids take it over from the Ptolemies. Right. So now all of a sudden, the people living in the living in the Holy Land who are Jews, but also you know very like Nabataeans and Edomites, but the Jews are like the primary people in the Holy Land that 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 when ancient historians are reckoning with this territory, like they're focused on the Jews. So, uh...
0: Now, this is just, just to bring in Jewish history,
2: what temple are we on? Right. So right now, what happens is, if you're just kind of thinking schematically and historically, so the first temple, which is or sort of the temple in Jerusalem that's built by Solomon, that ends up being destroyed by the Babylonians in the year 586 BCE. Then, 70 years later after the babylonian empire has been conquered by the persians by cyrus so the first thing that cyrus does now actually cyrus runs on a can, uh, runs i mean he conquers the babylonian empire but he he's able to amass so many allies to his side by preaching a a propaganda campaign that was that was in fairness to him was totally true against the babylonians for having exiled peoples from their traditional lands and stolen all of and destroyed all of their temples And in fact, the the last emperor of the Babylonians, Nabonidus, had done the same thing to the priests in Babylon itself. He had kind of taken away the tax exempt status of Babylon. So Cyrus comes in and he conquers Babylon itself. And we should we should
0: should point out here that and this is important because we're going to get to the Hellenists and the Hellenizers. Cyrus has this attitude that, you know, I don't want to it's but no one culture has a monopoly on divine wisdom. And if you want to worship whoever you want to worship, that's fine. Just pay your taxes, and we're cool. Which is a very different approach than the Babylonians, or for that matter, the the ancient Assyrians, who just would probably kill everybody. Cyrus, in that sense, was an enlightened despot. He believed that if you know you wanted to worship whoever you want, I don't care. Just pay taxes, and that's a different attitude, I might add, than sort of some of the Hellenistic ideas. But let's I just want to put that out there. And that's important yeah.
2: because, because in essence, I mean, listen... It you know, allowed the Jews to
0: build a second temple.
2: Yeah. and uh, In other yeah. words, Cyrus, and this is actually important for contemporary geopolitics, if you're looking for positive historiographical appreciations of Iranian history yes. and the history of Iran, there is no better place to look than Jewish sources. There is no more positive historical tradition on the Persians and on Iran than... Jewish sources, that goes for the Hebrew Bible, it goes for the Talmud, and it goes for subsequent Jewish sources as well. It doesn't mean that Jews always did well in in Persia and in Iran and Iraq, they didn't, but they were very, Cyrus was considered an extremely positive figure. The Hebrew Bible refers to him actually as, as the anointed of God. That word, the anointed, ends up being the, in Hebrew is the word Mashiach, and that's the word for, that's where the English word for Messiah comes from. So we don't Cyrus consider of, Cyrus to be the Messiah, but, but we, right, we thought he was right. great,
0: the Jewish people at the time were like, this guy's wonderful.
2: Yeah. This guy rules. Yeah, exactly. And Jewish tradition is similarly positive about his not immediate successor, but his next most prominent successor, which is Darius. It's under Darius's rule that the second, that the temple is rebuilt. What Jews today typically refer, or historians today typically refer to as the second temple. It's rebuilt also at Jerusalem and so, of which the remnant,
0: the wall that people pray at, they're known as the Western Wall, that's the remnant of that second temple.
2: Right, so that was the sort of the wall, retai- right. that was like the retaining wall around what's now called the Temple Mount. So this is also important just to get a sense of the history. So what happens after the temple is built, like if you look in the sources that we have for the rebuilding of the second temple that are in addition to just basic archaeology, which is which is the easiest way to do it, but the literary sources tell us that when it was rebuilt, it wasn't very nice. It was pretty ugly in fact. And the Temple Mount as if like if you look at the Temple Mount today, you know, or the the Haram al-Sharif in the Muslim tradition, if you look at it, it looks like a flat table. And you kind of think, I remember when the first time I saw it as a kid, I was like, man, like how how convenient to have found just a flat tabletop mountain in Jerusalem. Like it's perfect. You just put a temple right on top. So it's actually man-made. It's artificial because in the 1st century before the common era, Herod who was a king who came later, much later than the than the Hanukkah story? In fact, he represents sort of the very, very end of anything that we know from the Hanukkah story. He kills off the he ends up killing off the the last of the Hasmoneans, which is the the dynasty descended from the Maccabees. But Herod is sort of like a client king of Rome. Yeah, and we'll, we'll, we'll his, get to that. Yeah, yeah. So his major contribution is to beautif, to enlarge the Temple Mount and beautify the Temple. But the important thing to remember is that. During the period that we're talking about the period of Hanukkah, the temple is sort of a relatively compared to what it was back in the you know in the Solomonic temple days. It's a relatively drab building, but it has a lot of good stuff inside now geopolitically, this is really, really important because it kind of explains how the Hanukkah story gets started just in terms of like well, the straw that broke the camel's back, but we could get that as well
0: okay so we so so we've we've established now that we are in the era of the Second Temple. The Seleucids have just taken over Judea. And there's an interesting kind of thing that's happening, and it's, it's, there's two books of Maccabees in the Bible. The first book makes it seem like the rebellion of the Maccabees is a typical, you know, rebellion, revolution, uprising of the natives against the despot, in this case, Ahasuerus. The uh, Antiochus. I'm sorry, Antiochus. Antiochus. My bad, my bad, everybody. That's <laughs> why we brought on the, the chief rabbi here. Okay. The second book makes it seem like it's merely a little bit more of a civil war among the Jewish people in Judea because you do have a lot of Jews living in Judea. And by the way, I want to just, I want to put a fine point on this because when you get into the, when you when you start to understand these st- sort of ancient texts and and the stories of antiquity, but you look at it like, there's a lot of geopolitics and there's a lot of internal politics. There's a lot of Jews who were Hellenized, but they're like pushing on open door. They love it. They love gymnasiums. They, they kind of, you know, they're happy to say, yeah, I'm an Israelite, but I'm also, you know, aware of all these modern ideas. I like reading all these philosophies and reading all these plays, et cetera, et cetera. And it's an issue that actually comes up when they're building this, when they return from the Babylonian exile, because you've got Ezra and Nehemiah and they're like, they say there's too much intermarrying among the Jews who stayed there. So there's this tension in the ancient land of Judea, right, between the assimilation-minded Jews and then the ones who are trying to remain kind of true to the faith. Is that fair?
2: So it's, I think that's kind of like the conventional wisdom about Hanukkah, but I, I want to adjust it a little okay. bit. Because here's, yeah. the, here's the historical anomaly or the 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 kind of the paradox, as it were, that should force us to question the narrative. I want to kind of start it off okay. by by referencing one of my favorite Hanukkah columns ever, because it's just it's so offensive; it just makes you laugh. As many things he wrote, Christopher Hitchens had a great great Hanukkah column for Slate back in the day. This is like this is like over a day, This was like 2007. Yeah. And the title of the column is Bah Hanukkah, which is awesome. Yeah. And he refers to Hanukkah as the triumph of tribal Jewish backwardness. And suffice it to say, he was not a fan.
0: Right. The Maccabees as the Jewish Taliban.
2: Right. Exactly. That's kind of his take on it. Now, the strange thing, if you're an historian, is if you look at the aftermath of Hanukkah, right? So you could tell the story this is like enlightened, assimilated, acculturated Jews who just want, you know, who just want a culture of open inquiry and intellectual curiosity in the grandest tradition of Athens. It's a battle between them and these like weird, this weird cross between like Hasidic Jews and ISIS, right? That's basically what this, what's at stake right. here. What then happens on that theory is pretty inexplicable. The ISIS, you know, the ISIS Qasidim win, and then immediately, for some reason, they set up a they set up a a government in the Holy Land, an independent government. It takes them, a, you know, a couple years to sort of fully disentangle themselves administratively from the Salute State, but they're a totally independent country with their own monarchy and their monarchs are by everything that we can tell basically pretty standard hellenistic era monarchs they participate in the wider culture of the day they take greek names they are diplomats they are they are participating in every way that you would expect from a standard ruler of the day and the question is well hold on what happened to the what happened to the you know talibanic rule that we were expecting is this is this just is this proof in action of the theory that well if you give the extremist power they'll moderate themselves there doesn't seem to be any self-reflection in jewish sources at least that would suggest that that was in fact what happened nobody seems to say well if, you know you, you don't have any of the old guard lamenting like oh these people have totally hellenized themselves i mean you get that later but for totally different reasons so what happens is it is it is it is it just a mistake? It's just a, is maybe that the Hanukkah miracle, the Hanukkah miracle that that everything that Christopher Hitchens feared would come to pass did not, in fact, come to pass? Well, the answer is that Hitchens' theory is wrong. And, in fact, what's happening in the first and second books of Maccabees, now just to put those into perspective, they're two books that they're two kind of what I suppose you would call extra-biblical or para-biblical books, as in they're not in what we would think of as the canon but they are written in contemporaneously with the events that occur. There are two books that tell the story, of, the, that tell the story of, of Hanukkah. There are other sources that we have, but these are two of the most prominent ones and certainly contemporaneous ones. They're conveniently referred to as the first book of Maccabees and the second book of Maccabees. Right. The first book of Maccabees is written in, originally in Hebrew, though we only have it in Greek now, and that's written in the land of Israel. The second book of Maccabees is written in Greek, and it's written in the diaspora. The first book of Maccabees is... A more or less not sec- secular is too strong a word, but it is a very hu- it, it is a an account of the story of Hanukkah that is deeply focused on human agency and particularly the human agency of of Mattityahu Mattathias, sort of the father of of Judah the Maccabee, and the exploits of his sons, particularly Judah Maccabee, and which which in which that's just Greek for Judah the Hammer, so that's hence the Hebrew Hammer, so. It's a story of their exploits, and the second book of Maccabees is a story that focuses on the the sort of divine the divine support or the divine interest in the events of this story, and it kind of expands the picture a little bit, it includes other stories, not just the Maccabees. so those are the sources that we have now, what we can tell from those sources is that the following had happened again, let's bring this back because I know this is like this is uh, this is a very. Complex story, but we could actually make it pretty simple. Let's first bring it back out geopolitically. So Antiochus, that we're talking about, who's the Seleucid Emperor at the time, is actually Antiochus IV. His father, Antiochus III, was known and in fact appreciated in Jewish history as such as Antiochus the Great. He was actually a hero. He was a great lover of the Jewish people. He was very friendly to them and very supportive of them, and was a great diplomat besides. Son, was who was supposed to take over from him, was Seleucus IV, but for a variety of reasons he gets assassinated and Antiochus IV, usur- who's the, the other brother, usurps the throne. And so he comes to power. Now his great ambition, and he was seems to have been kind of like a bumbling fool, and this is not true just for Jewish sources, but the, the Greek sources also portray him as just kind of like a moron. His great ambition was to actually conquer Egypt from the Ptolemies. And so Antiochus goes down to Egypt with an army, and it appears that he has a good chance of success to conquer Egypt. But then at the last minute, a a new player enters, as it were, and a, sort of a new fighter enters. And that fighter is Rome, which is just at the just the beginning of its of its of its role well, as so it's world the beginning power. of its descent from being a republic to an empire. R- right. So it's exactly it's It is it is on its way. It is on its way. Julius Caesar will not be much longer after this. It will be about a century later. So they send down... There's kind of like this famous... this kind of like this very cool story where the Roman ambassador is like this elderly man. I love this story. Yeah, Gaius Papilius Lanus. from Livy, yeah. Yeah, it's totally rad. So he kind of comes down to Egypt and tells Antiochus, you need to withdraw your armies. And Antiochus goes, absolutely not. And so what what Lanus does... Is he draws, he, he, he draws a line around Antiochus and he says, like, he before draws a you a circle leave the, around him. Yeah, he draws a circle around Antiochus.
0: In the, in the sand. And he's like, yeah, okay, make your decision. You know, he's like, give me your decision and then you can kind of like leave the circle. Right? Exactly. <laughs> he says,
2: before you leave the circle. circle, give me an answer that I can take back to the Senate in Rome about your intentions. Because if you give the wrong answer, you are capital S screwed. Right. And, Antiochus ends up, that's kind of like helps, That stories like that help popularize the phrase that we still use today, line in the sand. So Antiochus leaves Egypt with his tail between his legs, humiliated, defeated, having spent a ton of money. And as he's, as he's traipsing dejectedly back to his capital in, in Syria and in Asia Minor, he passes right through the land of Israel. And as he's walking by, he sees the Jerusalem temple. And he looks at it and he says, as, as anti-Semites are, have been wont to do for centuries after, he goes, these Jews must be hiding a ton of money. And so he walks into the temple, he loots it. And that is the, that's the first sign that Jews under the Seleucids have that all might not be right. and there, And to be frank, Jews are shocked by this. Like you can see from from their reactions, and so Jews are shocked by this. Well, also, like it's true that under the Seleucids, Judea had a bit of autonomy. I mean, it was a client state, but it wasn't like Antiochus's dad was great to the Jews. Right, but it was was like, yeah, yeah. and there were, you know, you could even say political factions in Judea. Yeah, for sure. And you see that play out in the Hanukkah story, but the way that that works out is, and is, Again the the history at this point goes a little bit murky but there are some things that we know okay. and that all the sources agree upon. And what seems to happen next is that Antiochus starts to detect starts to detect kind of political unrest in the land of Israel. Now, the second book of Maccabees which talks about this a lot is very is made very uncomfortable by this. Because remember, it's a book written in the diaspora. It's written under the rule of of non-Jewish powers and it it, it is it is at pains to de-emphasize conflict between Jewish people and their overlords as possible. So to the extent that it can, the second book of Maccabees tries to pin the blame for this on like malcontents with political malcontents within the Jewish people. But what seems to happen next is that there is this conflict within, within Seleucid policy towards the land of Israel, which is the following should we just continue doing as we used to do, which is conquer them, which is not great, but at least let them be for the most part? Right. Or is it high time for us to assert the dominance of Hellenistic culture over this backwards superstitious people? And the latter view wins out. And what then happens is, first of all, Antiochus introduces, first of all, in the, in the kind of run-up to this, to the story of Hanukkah, first of all, places an idol with what is probably a statue of Zeus right in the middle of the Jerusalem temple. He, in addition to having looted it, he now defiles it. And he then seems to place a ban on Jewish practices, particularly observant. First of all, he, he seems to want to make circumcision illegal, places a ban upon observance of the Sabbath and other things of this nature. And within that context, there are basically two responses. The responses are either, this is an outrage and we have to do something about it. Or the response is, well, look how much money the, these Seleucids have. Look how shiny their stuff is and look how cool their gymnasiums are. And like, honestly, how, I mean, how important was the Sabbath stuff anyway? And like circumcision, I mean, listen, if we want to compete. Well, you mentioned in, the Sabbath. There's a, there's a fascinating little
0: tale about the first battle. With the uh, They bring in that general, right? He brings in a general. It happens to be the Sabbath. And we should tell our listeners, the Sabbath is the day of rest. It's the weekly Jewish holiday. You are not allowed to work, to exert labor on the Sabbath. And the first, like, I don't know, Maccabee militia will not fight on the Sabbath and they get wiped
2: out. So, yeah, so you have this group that are known, that's known in Greek as the Asidaioi, which means, which would literally is a Greek transliteration of the word Hasidim. Very different than what we, than the contemporary right. Hasidim, but the word is the same, which means the pious ones, right? Or right. the, 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 yeah. And anyway, the devoted ones. So this group of people won't fight on the Sabbath and they are annihilated. Then the, by uh, the way, prompting,
0: the Ma- I mean, after that, the exception is in, in the Talmud, right? I mean, they, 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 because of that story, it's like you can fight if you're you have to on the Sabbath.
2: so Yeah, right. So the, the Maccabees come in and they kind of remind their fighters that, hey, Jewish tradition is pretty clear that when life is at stake, the Sabbath is not only can you violate it, you must violate it. Right. And so they, be, they, fight on, they do fight on the Sabbath and defend themselves. Now, what happens is, so you have, you have members of sort of the, the, the Jewish political elite who sort of say, hey, you know what? Listen. It's so much easier, more glamorous to be part of the Hellenistic elite. And so let's just go along with this. Listen, if we want to participate in athletic competitions, we got to be naked. It's kind of gauche to be circumcised. And so you have this entire movement within the Jewish people, believe it or not, called the Epispasmic Movement, which is the movement to kind of reverse your circumcision. Whoa. Which is, which is like a pretty. That's I mean, listen, it's, it's pretty hardcore. Um, does it
0: involve like stretching?
2: Right, yeah. Yikers, Yikers <laughs> Island. Pretty, no, thank yeah. you. Exactly, hard pass. Yeah. So all of this kind of comes to a head in the city of Modin, which is still a city in, in Israel today. You could kind of see it today. That's the city where Mattathias, the, the father of the Hasmonean clan, the Maccabee clan is from. And he is a he is a priest. The Maccabees are priests. He's a priest and he is in the city of Modin when the local... Seleucid governor basically plants an idol in the town square against the backdrop of all of this and says, okay, this is the official religion of this place now. And your traditions are, your traditions are gone. In many cases, they're illegal. And, and this is what this country is now. There is room for one way of thinking, for one way of being, one way of doing, one way of worshiping, and yours ain't it. And in order to have that confirmed or in order to kind of cement this, right? He says it's not enough for us to come in and tell you that we're going to do that. We're going to co-opt your we're going to co-opt your elite and have them show you that this is the new law of the land. And so he summons forth one of the kind of members of the elite of Modian and and has him and gives him the opportunity to sacrifice to this idol. And the person is like more than happy to do it because what's waiting for him are riches and glory. And it's at this point that Jews kind of realize that this is this is not a battle for is is openness to Hellenic culture, both the bad and the good permissible in the land of Israel. The question that's really at bar as Hitchens misunderstood was, is Judaism permitted going to be permitted in the land of Israel? Right. And the answer, as far as the Seleucids were concerned, was no. By the way, and so to th- this day, ancient history, right?
0: Land, you know before the common era to this day in israeli politics this question resonates so we know that like the second intifada happens it was being planned beforehand but it happens after ariel sharon goes to the temple mount and says no Jew should not should be barred from practicing the judaism in the land of israel we know this is a huge theme for like Begin during the revolt when the british are in charge it's a ser. It's it's something that go that that sort of binds in, throughout Jewish history, as it relates to Israel. This is a key question, and it's really put to the test here in the story of Hanukkah.
2: Right, and so the the question that like the question that you have in essence is, will Judaism be practicable within the within its homeland? And what you have at this point is kind of. One person, uh, it's Mattathias, and he's and he's in the story of Modine. Okay, so can you just before what's the background
0: on, on the Ma- Mattathias and the Maccabee clan? What, what you know? Do we know much about like you know what they were up to? Why what in Modine and anything like that? or are we just this is the first we've heard of them in history?
2: Yeah, we know very little about them. Okay. Their ancestors mentioned in the Bible. They have an ancestor like a, a minor ancestor who's mentioned in the Bible, but they don't seem to make much of this. But they have a minor ancestor who's mentioned in the Bible. And so what you have is Mattathias is kind of standing in the town square. And the their conquerors, these the Seleucids, had believed that their Greek culture was like the only path to enlightenment. And they'd resolved to kind of Hellenize this peculiarly stubborn people like the Jews. And they sought out the right kind of Jewish collaborator, right? Like, you know, people who like weren't too bearded or too weird. To persuade the rest of the locals to abandon their backwards like desert God and their primitive laws, and then so just as one of these kind of Hellenizing Jews steps up to sacrifice to Almighty Zeus, Mattathias emerges from the crowd, and he this you know he he steps up to the steps up to the altar, having zero patience for this act of imperialism, idolatry he actually kills the Jewish collaborator and not just the collaborator, but the Seleucid governor as well. Another pick, and, It's
0: another big deal.
2: Yes, and in doing so, he launches a war, which is partly, as you said, an internal Jewish conflict, but it's also partly a rebellion against Greek imperial power that would end with that kind of well-publicized victory of Mattathias and his sons, the Maccabees, and the story of the oil and so on and so forth.
0: Okay, now let's, let's talk about, let's, let's steel man it a little bit. I mean, was there an argument that Judaism could have survived had, you know, like, it, it's not like the the more urbane Jews of Jerusalem of that era who were going to gymnasiums, they still saw themselves as Jewish, right? I mean, they, you know, and the history of Judaism is such that there's all kinds of evolutions and improvisations that have to be because, you know, obviously after the destruction of the second temple, nobody built a third temple. So there had to be all kinds of adjustments, especially with Jews and scattered to the winds and diaspora and so forth. So why couldn't this have just been, I mean, like, did it have to be taken as such an existential thing? Is there an argument here? Maybe I'm making the Hitchens argument. Fair enough. But the Mattathias was like, you know, he was sort of like, he was taking a very Manichaean approach and maybe he could have, you know, could have understood that like, hey, you know, it's possible to have different shades of this and you know, maybe there was maybe there was a little wiggle room or is that just, you think, the wrong interpretation?
2: The key here is the Seleucid ban on Jewish practice. Fair there, enough. Actually, yeah. there actually was a there actually was a long tradition of kind of Jewish historians who all kind of emerged either, you know, secular or emerged from sort of the more liberal denominational movements who were made very uncomfortable by the story of by the story of Hanukkah. And what emerged was kind of this historiographical tradition of saying, well, this is so odd because this the the kind of the Hellenistic monarchs never imposed this kind of ban on any other group within within their empires, and so Prima Facie it just seems unlikely that they would have done so to the Jews, and therefore the idea that there was a ban on religious practice either it shouldn't be taken literally, or maybe we have we should have reason to question that source, or maybe it's propaganda. And it kind of took an article by Fergus Millar, who's one of like the great historians of the ancient world, the Roman, a Roman historian and historian of, of the Levant, to kind of write an article where he just collects all of the evidence from our literary sources, archaeological sources, and et cetera, and basically just says, look, it's like an inescapable historical conclusion that to the extent we can be sure about anything in the ancient world, which is very dicey, obviously, but to the extent we can be sure about anything in the ancient world, we can be sure... That Antiochus and the Seleucids did indeed impose just restrictions and and sort of passed anti-Jewish laws against the Jewish people, and you kind of just just have to deal with that. And if their response, and he points that if the response is well, the Hel- the Hellenistic kingdoms never did this to anybody else within their empire. Well, yeah, man, that's like the history of anti-Semitism. Like okay, Jews fair enough. Fair.
0: No, no, no. I, and I and I think it's an important point. I mean, I the, the hilarious thing about all that not hilarious, but Kind of happened because Antiochus wasn't expecting a Roman council, Roman diplomat to to threaten him. He loses all this money and sort of just decides on a whim, it seems, to loot the temple. I mean, it kind of like starts there, right? It's like, you know, you you make a bad decision and then you make a series of other bad decisions to justify the first
2: bad decision. (laughs) It's such a hugely important point. I'll tell you why. In the ancient world, and these are events that reverberate down to the right. present day, all of the greatest anti-Semitic atrocities in the ancient world or, or anti-Jewish atrocities in the ancient world arguably are the product of geopolitical accidents that have nothing to do with anything the Jews did or didn't do. This is one good example. The other quite famous example is the destruction of the Second Temple by the Romans in the year, in the year seventy. What happens there is, again, panning out from from the land of Israel, like if you're just interested in Roman history, so that period is so important and fascinating. That year, I think 69 CE, is the year of the four emperors. It's basically the collapse of the the line begun by Julius and Augustus Caesars, right? That line, the Julio-Claudian line, collapses. That's sort of like Nero fiddling while Rome burns. That's that story. And... Rome is basically bereft of an imperial steward, and various strongmen throughout the empire arise to try and take that throne, Otto, Vitellius, and so forth. One of them is Vespasian. Vespasian is the commanding officer of the legions in Judea who were dealing with the, with the Jewish revolt in, in, in Rome. Now, the Jewish revolt against Rome in the Holy Land was, geopolitically speaking, a relatively minor matter. But Vespasian needs a massive victory to parade in front of the people of Rome in order to shore up and legitimize his claim to the imperial throne. And so what he does when he attempts to claim the throne is he leaves his son, Titus, who would be his successor as emperor of Rome, in charge of the forces leading the attack against the Jews in in the Holy Land. And he goes back to Rome to make his case. Once the Romans... Now, by the way, Josephus, the Jewish historian of that era, portrays Titus's destruction of the temple as an accident. Now, many historians since then have questioned it because he was clearly a... I mean, Josephus was a... uh, His patrons were the... uh, Titus and Vespasian were his patrons, and he was clearly a sympathizer. All of those things are true. But uh, what historians since then have argued, and I'm actually persuaded by this, is that it is entirely likely that... Titus actually never meant to destroy the temple, but once he did, he very much needed to portray it as like a mighty victory. And so that's what he does. And so the famous Arch of Titus you can see in Rome today with the depiction of the spoils of war from Judea being paraded through the streets of Rome in a triumph and, you know, in a triumphal parade. This is all because they need to portray this as a mighty victory, even though it wasn't really. And then what happens is Vespasian and then Titus impose a head tax, right, a sort of a, a, a poll tax on Jews throughout the empire. So every single Jew throughout the empire needs to pay a special tax purely for being Jewish to Rome as a punishment for their rebellion against Rome. This had never been imposed on any other people who had rebelled for the first time against the Romans in the entire history of the empire. And the amount that they impose as a tax on the Jews is, is the monetary equivalent of the exact same amount that Jews throughout the world would pay all the way back to biblical times for the upkeep of the temple, a half shekel. And they do it to humiliate the Jews. Mm. And what you can see from Jewish sources during this period is they have no idea why they're being treated this way. Like they rebelled, but like they, they cannot believe that they're being treated so harshly. And then what happens is after after kind of this first, you know, bit of anti-Jewish fervor over the course of generations dies down, it dies down, you know, it, it, it dies down because Domitian the 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 last of Vespasian's sons who takes over from from Titus is Domitian after he passes away his successor is Nerva the emperor Nerva and Nerva's kind of like a chill dude he doesn't have any he doesn't have any horse in the race of beating on the beating down the Jews and so he kind of removes the poll tax and he stops persecuting Jews and he's kind of like a chill guy but after Nerva dies his successor is Trajan and Trajan is kind of a commoner who rises up through the ranks and in order to, again, legitimize his his status as imperial heir, he has to also trumpet the one great thing that he did in his life, which was that he and his father were part of the Judean campaign. And so he reinstitutes the poll tax on Jews to remind everybody that this is part of his history. And his successor, Hadrian, who's also an incredible villain, continues the same policies. And... What happens actually is throughout the Jewish diaspora, you start to see these revolts because Jews are like, why are we being treated this way? They have no Jews have no idea why any of this is happening. The reality is it's all happening because of imperial jockeying within the Senate, within Roman equestrian circles. It has nothing to do with how Jews are behaving, what they are or aren't doing. And the lesson, at least of that, I think, is that if you're searching for rhyme or reason, in explaining anti-Semitism and you're searching for it in the behavior of Jews, you're probably looking in the wrong place. All of the most, all of the most heinous examples of anti-Jewish, anti-Jewish hatred. And in the case of the Romans and the Seleucids, like actual true bloodshed. If you're and violence, if you're looking for the root of those things, it is, it is in the both bigotries and, exigencies like the this the necessary circumstances as they see it of the people who are manipulating that hatred well i would go one further
0: i think that if you look the lesson of all that is that there is no security for the jewish people if they don't have a state in which they're sovereign yeah i mean because it's like you're at the whims of you know the politics of the roman senate then you have no say over the rise of, you know, a wicked consul who will, you know, or I should say, I guess, a wicked emperor who will persecute the Jewish people for, you know, part of their own kind of polit- internal political campaign.
2: I'd put it this way if I just wanted yeah. to sum it up. Jews should, Jews, and especially Jews in a sovereign state, should behave morally and uprightly and in an exemplary fashion. But the reason they should do those things is because, and I'm putting on my rabbi hat for a moment, the reason we should do those things is because that's how God wants us to behave, and there's nothing more important than how God wants us to behave. But if your theory of Jewish morality when it comes to power is that Jews should behave in a certain way because otherwise people will hate us and be mean to us and persecute us and kill us and be violent against us, then you're basically just a Benedict Arnold. That's how I would think of it. Fair enough. Okay, but
0: that... (laughs) Brings us back to the to the Hanukkah story. I want to get to a couple right. more things and maybe <laughs> tease out some lessons here. But, I mean, is there a way... I mean, I guess I have to say this. Grateful for the Maccabees for keeping the flame alive. Their cause was righteous. But there's a side of the Maccabees which is a very kind of insular existence in some ways that is like where, you know, that that part of the you know, I mean, that the, the, one of the, um, the miracles of Judaism as it has survived in diaspora is its ability to synthesize and kind of, you know, be in relationship with these other cultures and that have enriched Jewish life. That Judaism doesn't need to have, to you know, Jews do not have to live in a state, in a Jewish state in order to be Jewish. They can, and they can take the, benefits and the fruits of these other cultures and so forth that enrich our lives and enrich Judaism to a certain extent certainly you could argue some of the great talmudic rabbis and you would know this better than i were are, are influenced by not only the greek philosophers but the neoplatonists of the middle ages you know certainly you know what I mean? I mean if you look at what rambam you know is you know certainly influenced in some ways by aquinas right i mean if there's a you know back and forth
2: it's you know, and it's largely been a good thing. I think it's the other way around. Okay, fair enough. You like, know Aquinas is as important Maimonides, but Maimonides is deeply indebted to Aristotle. He and also Aristotle not just Aristotle. The... What about
0: the the great Arab now, right? I mean, he's...
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm
0: sorry, I got that wrong, but that's why we have the rabbi here. No, no, correct, you're right, you're right. Correct me, but <laughs> my point is, is that, you know, on the one hand, again, I appreciate what the Maccabees did. On the other hand, I think that you don't want too much of that because then, you know, we remain... Stuck, And that, that, by the way, is the problem for so many of these other religions and civilizations of that period. They can't adapt. They can't, they can't move on. They can't hold it together if they're not in their homeland or whatever. So one of the amazing things, the malleability of the Jewish people is that they're able to absorb and interact with these other ideas that aren't necessarily Jewish. And it's just a side of the tradition that I don't think the Maccabees represent.
2: Here's where I think it's so important to have, to have in mind Hanukkah as rightly understood, to, ba- to borrow a Peter Lawler phrase. Hanukkah is not, as Hitchens thought, an attempt to isolate Judaism from any other influence within its own society right. or around the world. What Hanukkah is, is a story about the attempt to assert that Jewish thought and tradition needs a home, a home where it can a home where it can shape the conversation. And Judaism and Jewish thought and Jewish intellectual tradition is too important to be made into irrelevant window dressing at a fancy cocktail party with your Hellenistic overlords. Totally. And as far as as far as subsequent history goes, that view is proven absolutely correct. If Western civilization has itself has two foundational pillars, and one of them is kind of Greco-Roman philosophy and jurisprudence, the other pillar, and arguably the more important one in the American story, is the Hebraic tradition. And had the other side won on Hanukkah, that would not have produced Hitchens' enlightened world. It would have ensured that the enlightenment as we, as we know it never would have happened. I love that. And and so what, what Hanukkah means in that sense, I think, is it tells us precisely what Judaism is for. What I mean by that is it is true that one of the remarkable things about Jewish culture, precisely because it's not a universalistic faith it is deeply invest it has universalistic elements the idea that all people are created in the divine image but it is but it is not universalism it's not tribalism but it's something else it's a third thing it's particularism right it is it it glories in human uniqueness and the uh, and the differences that make us all special rather than just the things that make us all the same and what that means therefore is that on the one hand, because God has created this magnificent and variegated world, we have a responsibility to plumb its depths and uncover within it the the signature of creation's author. So when you study Monet, or when you listen to Chance the Rapper, or when you study marine biology, not just as not just in a in a faux Costanzan sense, but like a real marine biology. So what you are doing in doing all of that is you are forging a relationship with God. Now, those are all good things because they answer the question of what does Judaism have to learn from the world? Or what do any of us have to learn? You forget if you're Jewish or not Jewish. What do any of us have to learn from people around us? But learning is one half of, hum- of, of, human, acti- of human intellectual activity. And for the Jewish people, the other half is in many ways more crucial. And that's teaching. We have a responsibility to be, to be teachers. Being teachers doesn't mean yelling things at people, but it does mean learning things with people. And one of the, the principles of the story of Hanukkah is that Judaism doesn't just have things to learn from the world around us. That we're able to do with or without the, the Hellenistic collaborators. And it's why the Maccabees establish a pretty standard Hellenistic monarchy once they've won. That's a really good point, which is to say that even though the Maccabees themselves
0: were attacking more assimilated Jews in Judea, once they got power, they didn't require everybody to shun Hellenism.
2: Yeah, well, because right, because again, the idea the idea that we have things to learn from the world around us is was just as true before the Maccabean Revolt as after. Or rather, just true after the Maccabean Revolt as before. Okay. The the thing that they're fighting to preserve is Judaism's ability to teach. Because if Judaism and Jewish thought and Jewish, the Jewish intellectual and theological tradition, if it doesn't have roots anywhere, then it'll wither and die. And it needs, to have, it, needs to have, it needs to have some ability to engage with the world around us. There is a reason why, to fast forward basically a millennium and a half about, uh, when the Holy Roman Empire... When Emperor Maximilian of the Holy Roman Empire comes up with a scheme to root out Judaism from within his territory, the, uh, the strategy or the tactic, the plot that he comes up with is not to kill Jews, is not to burn them at the stake, and it's not even to expel them because he knows that his governors want Jewish money and, and, a, ta- and a Jewish tax base. The scheme that he comes up with, aided by the Franciscans and the Dominicans, is to destroy every single Jewish book. It's called by historians the Book Pogrom of the Holy Roman Empire. And the logic behind it is very simple. The Jews are teachers. And if they don't have their intellectual tradition, they'll just disappear. And the story of Hanukkah is a story about a fight against that disappearance. And I would argue that to the extent that, as I said earlier... Western civilization, the American founding, the, the civil rights movement, abolition, all of the things that we take for granted as moral high watermarks in the American story, all of those things are rooted deeply, deeply, deeply in the Hebraic tradition, in the biblical tradition. They're not drawing upon, they're not drawing upon Greco-Rome, they're not drawing upon Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle. If anything, Aristotle is, Aristotle is the great justifier of slaveholders. This is, these are all drawing upon Hebraic intellectual tradition. So what's at stake you also argue in Hanukkah? That
0: Aristotle's, you know, one of the early advocates for having like
2: constitutions and national law sets and
0: well, all true, but Aristotle, Aristotle but Ar- is, you know, Aristotle's a giant. I hope so,
2: oh, true. Sure, Aristotle's great. Maimonides thought that Aristotle was one of the greatest thinkers who ever lived, but he also thought that people were sort of naturally born slaves and couldn't overcome that. No, couldn't overcome that, that,
0: that status. He had a lot of bad ideas
2: uh, too. I'm not. I'm just a lot of bad ideas. But my point is that. What's at stake in the story of Hanukkah is Western civilization, is the survival of these ideas so that they could influence some of the greatest thinkers in the Western tradition ever. And had the Maccabees lost, those ideas would have been lost. And that ultimately would have been a loss for us all. Okay. Now, now, one of the things that I always
0: take away from Hanukkah, the Hanukkah story, is uh, I always come back to this, like, insight from Theater Herzl, which is that, like, Don't all the anti-Semites and the evil, you know, all the enemies of the Jews understand that if they just treated us really well, we would have died out centuries ago because, you know. (laughs) You know, I mean it's an interesting and, and and it's really fascinating because there is like it's it's like obviously the tragedy of Jewish history is, you know, you can't it cannot be overstated. However, there is really something to that that if Antiochus wasn't a moron and he really wanted to stick it to the Jews, he would have just, like, opened more gymnasiums and made it available to, like, you know, just, hey, look at this great Greek culture. Isn't this fun? You know, and he probably would have had a lot more success in weakening the Jewish people than if he tried to, like, you know, ban Jewish practices, right?
2: I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, it's a good counterfactual. The other other alternative, which I think is probably more likely, is that had he contested in the arena of ideas in Judea itself, he would have lost. And that would have been, you know, one of the great rebukes of Hellenism was that, well, you know, that what probably would have ended up happening is that the, the is that the sluices would have talked about the Jews much like the Romans did as a people too stupid to appreciate how great Rome was. Which is <laughs> Tacitus's take on the Jews. They're, like, they're too lazy to work seven days a week. That's why they have a Sabbath and they're too stupid to, uh, to realize how, you know, they're, they're too stupid to realize that you shouldn't have too many kids. That's why they have so many kids, you know. It's so, like, you know, yeah.
0: 2,000 years later, scoreboard, buddy. S- scoreboard, exactly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but, but by the way, that ultimately is uh, another really important point, is that, look, the Seleucid Empire is, is at best a pretty picture on a postcard, and the Jews are still here and kicking. And the reason for that is pretty simple. Athens had great ideas. Jerusalem had great people. Athens had admirers, but Jerusalem had children, and that's the difference between a civilization that survives and a civilization that's just admired from afar.
0: Hmm. I mean, Greek ideas survive. It's not an either or. Sure, people we, admire them. I mean, them. I'm just saying They're, Greek is be, Greek. Ancient Greece and ancient Rome still have a profound effect on the world. There's no sure, doubt about he, it, and including the Judaism. Judaism also has a profound effect on the. I mean, I just, it's not, I don't, sure. I don't accept that. I think that there, there's a long legacy of ancient Greece. Now your point is well taken about the Seleucids, but again, Alexander died. There was no successor. I think it was like he flew too close to the sun. You know what I mean? Like he was just too, He's was too damn good. You know, it was like that, it was like that golden state warriors team with Kevin Durant. Exactly. You know what I mean? It's it can't good. last forever. <laughs> exactly. It's just like, exactly. too damn good.
2: Give, just give Egypt to Kevin Durant and give Asia Minor Steph Curry and have them go their separate ways. Pretty much, right?
0: <laughs> um, now, before we go, do you want to just say a little bit about Maccabees were really fierce fighters. And if you just look at the odds, they should not have stood a chance against the Seleucids. And yet they won and they, they, were, they fought guerrilla warfare. I mean, it was pretty impressive impressive like generalship in some ways, right? From Judah and later John Yonatan and others. You you
2: you would know you would know much better than I do, but it's it is possible that here is where the comparisons to the Taliban actually make sense. A little bit. Just right? But talking about the suicide attacks. Well I'm not even I don't even mean the suicide attacks. I just mean the ability of kind of this this like backward, outgunned and outmanned people to keep a really mighty military power at bay for quite a long time what the what the Maccabees are able to do is is yes hold off one of the mightiest militaries on the planet with fewer numbers fewer provisions living uh,
0: like off the earth in a swamp yeah i mean the Maccabees and, i mean it was a rough it's like once they committed to rebellion
2: it wasn't well you easy. know what's interesting What's interesting is now kind of the, the Jewish stereotype, at least in the American mind, is like we're all kind of short, nebbi accountants. We're all Woody Allens. Right. But once upon a time, the stereotype of, of Jews in the ancient world was that we were soldiers. That's, why, that's how Jews end up in Egypt, for example. Jews during the Persian period, there's lots of archaeological evidence for very interesting Jewish communities in Egypt, and they all, they're all like doing cool, fascinating things. But every single Jewish community that starts in Egypt... At its inception, is a military colony. And in fact, if you fast forward past the story of Hanukkah down to the story of, of Rome, so in the era of Hadrian, in the wake of the second Jew- Jewish revolt against Rome, there are more Roman troops per capita stationed in Israel, in the land of Israel, than anywhere else in the Roman Empire, the equivalent of basically two and a half legions, in a tiny strip of land like the size of, like New Jersey. And it is remarkable. The fear that that Jewish soldiers struck into the hearts of imperial despots yeah, well, no longer, across I mean, like, time it, and across the world. The IDF
0: today <laughs> yeah, pretty fearsome. The Irgun yeah. and the Haganah were pretty impressive against the, right. the remnants of the British Empire. I mean, you know, I mean.
2: These guys are all like Zohans, you know. <laughs> something like that.
0: Well, and this like leads. Let me just, and we'll we'll end it. Oh, and up. This is you've been so generous with your time, Rabbi. Well, in the modern sense, I'm not a fan of modern Hanukkah in the West. It feels like it's like oh, it's the Jewish Christmas, and there's an emphasis on getting like the eight presents for every night and everything like that. And it's like I don't know. I, I'm not. know i am not I mean, I'm a new father now, so I'm gonna do it obviously with my daughter. But it's not a big. <laughs> It just feels, like, it feels forced. It feels like the spirit of Hanukkah is not really there. I mean, what are your thoughts on Hanukkah and the sort of modern tradition, the modern Hanukkah of 2022 and, you know, in, in the West and like how it's like, oh, you know, you, you've you got your, it's like, you've got your Christmas, your Kwanzaa, your Hanukkah, everybody's got a holiday. Right, exactly. And it's, it's a not even question. like, well, and this this is a good, an important point, it's not a major holiday in Judaism either, So,
2: so... It's interesting. I I actually was thinking about this literally just this morning. I think Robin Hanson tweeted something about, like, what is... Why are there arguments about the spirit of Christmas but not other Christian holidays? And it occurred to me, perhaps a more interesting question would be, why are there no arguments within the Jewish community? Like, no one argues about the spirit of any Jewish holiday. Like, you never hear those arguments. And if you do, it's only in the context of comparing it to Christmas. Yeah. And... Why and the question is why is that? Actually, I actually think there is a reason. And the and to kind of answer that question, I think you want to start with the fact that historically, not not as much today, but historically, Hanukkah actually was the story of Hanukkah, the events of Hanukkah were important and theologized not just by the Jews, but actually by Christians as well. On the Orthodox calendar, there's a feast of the Maccabees. And well, I know that. Oh yes, and those stories are actually read very very differently. The focus the the focus on the meaning of the events is totally different. So like the Christians focused almost exclusively on the theme of martyrdom, right? So there's a narrative in the second book of Maccabees about like this anonymous Jewish woman and her seven sons who allow themselves to be tortured and killed by Antiochus rather than than violate their faith. And early Christian writers like Origen and some of the other major church fathers understood the role of these Jewish model of these modern of these martyrs as like role models for Christians who achieved the ultimate goal of like escaping this world for a better one. And that's always the theme. Like let's escape the, 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 the lesson of the Maccabees is that this world is dross and fallen. And the way to partner with God is to escape this world and leave all earthly things behind. and right. partner in the next world. Right, right, right. Now, the authoritative story of the Maccabees in Jewish tradition is totally different. Jewish tradition didn't focus at all on the Maccabean martyrs in the context of of Hanukkah. Instead, it emphasized the role of Jewish fighters and what happened after their victory. And the and like the Christian retellings, right? Jewish tradition focuses on the partnership between man and God, but it's not a partnership that's located in heaven or in the next world, or in a world other than this one. It's actually identified here on Earth. And if you think about the story of the miracle of the oil, it reinforces that point, right? So in that story, right, it's not just the Eight Crazy Nights version that we know from Adam Sandler. It's actually a story about people—like, there's nothing at stake in the story, if you think about it. Like, okay, they didn't have enough oil. Okay, so they were going to get oil a week later. Moreover, Jewish law allows—moreover, Jewish law allows you to use impure oil— if the entire congregation can't find pure, like the, there's something at real, stake it's in the like, story. I, it's kind of a weird thing to focus on. Oh, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So think, but think about what it means. What the story is about. What the miracle is about is Jews just being able to resume their normal lives in this world. Because oh, I see. Because about... that's
0: what was at stake.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. So okay. the so the the two ways of remembering the Maccabees, I think, reflect like larger differences between modern Jewish and and Christian storytelling, right? So many people have noted, like Ross Douthat, I remember had a great column on this, he noted like the deep Christian influence on high fantasy like The Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, The Wheel of Time, and those epics stage the battle between good and evil in worlds that are not our own, right? right? Narnia, Middle Earth, you know, whatever the name of the place is in Wheel of Time, Randland. By contrast, Jewish influence is most conspicuous And I just had a guy in my podcast for this from DC Comics, Gorf. is most conspicuous in the comic superhero genre, right? So, like, DC and Marvel take place, like, in our world. Spider-Man's, like, from Queens. He's, like, from Forest Hills, right? Right. And because Jewish, Jewish writers who are imagining the cosmic battle between good and evil are imagining it taking place in this world because that's where the work of transformation has to occur. And so in that view... What you're really doing when you are lighting Hanukkah candles is you're putting a symbol in your window for everybody to see that says, I'm here to transform this world for the better. And I want you to partner with me. It's kind of a symbol. And that, I think, is why ultimately Jews kind of don't have these anxieties about Spirit of the Holiday. And the reason is because Spirit of the Holiday is an anxiety that you have when you don't have anything that you have to do on this day. It's just kind of like a a vague historical, I mean, not vague, but it's a historical remembrance. But it's not clear exactly how you're supposed to remember. One of the virtues, I think, and strengths of Jewish tradition is that it actually tells you it's not enough to just have the right thoughts or having the right thoughts is, is not even necessarily the goal. It's how you behave that matters and the kind of transformative work you do in this world that matters. And so it's nice to think about what Hanukkah means, et cetera, But at the end of the day, it's important what you do. Light your candles, put them in the window and and and. Understand that that means that you have a particular responsibility in terms of how you behave and and the kind of work that you do in this world. So to me, the best response to wondering about what it is that Hanukkah means is to do the things that that you're supposed to do on Hanukkah. Like that's the best way. That's the best way to cement What Hanukkah is about, I think.
0: Well, for me, the best way to cement what Hanukkah is about is (laughs) I'm going to go to every Jewish home in my neighborhood and confiscate the shellfish and pork. Yes, (laughs) because uh, in the spirit of the Maccabees, you know, we got to get it together. Too much, too much assimilation,
2: we lose it all. It's my way or the highway. Well, my kids are also getting boxy girls for, for, so I'm joking fairness. around everybody <laughs> to confiscate my own
0: kitchen. Probably anyway, we should
2: all watch uncut gems. <laughs> uncut Gems,
0: And also, I mean, I would say Ari Shafir's special Jew is very good. He gets, into you turn me on to that. I'm really psyched. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's pretty good. Ari, lamb, rabbi. Wonderful. As always, we'll have you back. I've been, I'm so glad we could do this as a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. The re-education was great. Oh, my God. I love coming on. That's great. Well, you know, we'll do, we'll do it soon again. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a Nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.